you could turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I had some things to say at the end of this message today that seem a little trivial after considering what we just heard and what we're about to hear and the Lord's Supper that we'll take. I know many of you are are wondering about the ministry plan for this year, and this is the week that I normally talk about that and will at the end. It just seems like the wrong place, any place this morning uh, seems like the wrong place to, to discuss those things because I really want our hearts to focus on the glory of Christ and what that means for us in this world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel and to Christ. At the beginning of each ministry year, I think it's helpful for us to refresh on our statement of purpose. If you have your new bulletin, you'll see this on the back of your bulletin, but most of us already have it memorized. If you do, let's say it together. It's posted, by the way, right outside this door on the wall, and here it is. Let's say it together. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. And I wish we had time to break that apart this morning, but I want to talk to you this morning about gospel urgency. Gospel urgency. As we await the Lord's return and as he's given us uh, work to do, uh, part of that work, in fact, the biggest part of that work is this exciting mission that God has called us to fulfill. It's wonderful for us to meet every Lord's Day morning um, to worship. It's Wonderful for us to hear sermons, to listen to fantastic music, and to sing God's praises together. All of that is, is necessary, and it's who we are as a church. It's what we do. And I don't know about you, and yes, I do, at least, at least ecclesiologically. I know that the reason God wants you here in part is so that we as a body would offer up praises in unison and in harmony to God that we would be saying the same words, the same thing, and meditating on the same truths. That's why we sing together. It's why we sing. And all of this is good. But there is a message that God has called us to deliver. It is a life-changing message. It is the transformative message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how do we do that in this age, and what keeps us from doing it? primary text we use in the formation of our purpose statement is 1 Peter chapter 2. And before I walk us through this text, I'd like us to stand together in honor of God's word, and let's read this passage together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built, upon, built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I lay a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the honor is for you who believe. 
But for those who disbelieve, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here it is. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Christ who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this word. And you can be seated. I want to talk to you, first of all, about the motivation for gospel urgency and then reformation of gospel urgency. Because the centerpiece of our time this morning is really the Lord's Supper. When we say, show us Christ, we see Christ in his word, but we see the work of Christ at his table. And so I'm going to have to kind of bounce through this rather quickly. Um, I will post all of my notes online Not that anyone reads those, but uh, it will all be there if you want. I'm going to have to abbreviate as we go, though I I do have plenty of time. Thank you, Kyle. Um, So let's talk about motivation for gospel urgency. So here's what Peter is doing. Using Old Testament Israel and the temple system of worship as kind of a rhetorical picture upon which he will build his message, he starts in here. And as he does that, you, you, you kind of read through here and you see allusions. If you think about it, you, you start to see the temple of the Lord. You start to see the, the Spirit of God dwelling in the temple of the Lord as he did in the Shekinah in the Old Testament. And you think, well, wait a minute, that's all Old Testament. This must mean something for us. And we understand, even through this text, that everything we get from God comes to us in Christ. And so what is it, Peter, that you are telling us about? He's rattling through these things as if we should know them. And he's not giving full explanation. And so let me me see if I can help us think through what he is alluding to in each case. And I would would call your attention to the fact that all of it points back to Jesus Christ and what we have in him. I want to talk to you about um, the privileges that we as believers have in Christ. The privileges that we have in Christ. And the first one is this. We have vital union with Christ. This is the believer's first privilege. Look at verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. And by the way, 
and rejected more and more in our day. So believers, as you are rejected for speaking about Christ, living for Christ, proclaiming the glory of Christ, just know they are not rejecting you, they are rejecting him, as they always have. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He's speaking of you. By the way, he'll use the same phrase in verse 6, speaking of Christ, chosen and precious. As you come to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. But notice the spiritual house and the stones and the cornerstone. What's he talking about? This is temple language. Solomon's going to build the temple. Where do you start building? You start with the cornerstone. It sets everything right. Everything built on the cornerstone will be right if the stone is perfect. And in this case, the stone is perfect. But he's not talking about Old Testament Israel. He's talking about New Testament church. We are built on Christ. He is the living stone. Living stone in the sense that stone, he is the foundation. Living, he is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen? We should have that as our tradition. Other places in the world, if you mention the resurrection of Christ, the congregation shouts, he is risen indeed or something. This, is, this really is the bedrock of our relationship with God, that Jesus Christ is the foundation, that he is risen from the dead, he is the living stone. But it's not just him. The church is not only Jesus, it is his people. We like living stones. So in Peter's mind, he's building in our minds the temple of the Lord. And so the foundation is Jesus Christ. The stones that are built on the foundation, that's you and me. And the whole idea here is that the Holy Spirit lives in the house, the temple of the Lord, which is the church made up of not just Jesus, not just you as an individual, but Jesus and his people. By the way, we are so individualistic in the West we, you think of you and Jesus. The Bible never presents it as you and Jesus. Almost never. And all through here, if you look, and we won't take time for it, but all the pronouns are plural. Even the ones that don't look like they're plural in Greek, they're plural. He's talking about us collectively, the church. He is the foundation and we are the stones. We are united to him. Oh, beloved, never fret and worry about your life because you are united with Christ. Never fret and worry about your relationship with God because you are united to Christ. This is the foundational teaching of the whole Christian faith. The foundation is not that you prayed a prayer. The foundation is not that you walked an aisle one day. The foundation is not 
your faith. Foundationally, it is Jesus Christ. And God, by his grace, has united us with Christ and formed us into this spiritual house. Spiritual house, pneumatikos is the word here, directly pointing to the Holy Spirit. It's the place where the Spirit lives. So where does the Spirit live? He lives in the church. He lives in us. The first privilege that we have, beloved, is that we are united with Christ. Do you remember John 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can bear how much? Nothing. You can bear nothing. So every fruit that we bear comes as a result not of our prowess, not because of our wisdom, but because we are united with Christ. It's a different imagery, but it's the same theology. Number two, we have fruitful ministry through Christ. Notice, as members of this temple, we are a a holy priesthood. And notice what this priesthood, and this is consistent with the analogy, right? There's a temple and there's a priesthood. It's kind of confusing, though, because we are the temple and we are the priesthood. Notice what he says. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to, the holy, uh, to, a, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are the acceptable sacrifices? We don't kill sheep, we don't kill lambs, we don't kill goats. I, I, I looked at this through the New Testament uh, this week. And there is language throughout the New Testament that points to various things that God says are acceptable sacrifices to me. And there are things that you could probably guess, like offering your bodies as a living sacrifice in service to other people, like praising God, like doing good to others, like sharing what you have with others, especially those who are in need, like leading people to Christ. Paul mentions that in Romans, Romans 15, about leading Gentiles to Christ. Gentiles, that's us, right? Most of us are Gentile. Leading us to Christ. Is, a, is an act of sacrifice which God receives. And other things like prayer, and, and the list goes on. This is not exhaustive. Anything you do for the glory of God is an acceptable sacrifice. You are the priests of God living in his temple, functioning in the world as those who represent God. And then we have eternal security. Look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a, corner, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Your translation may say, may not be disappointed. Um, this is wonderful. To be put to shame means to be humiliated. And that's what unbelievers in our day want to do with you. They want to humiliate you. They want to make you ashamed of the gospel. And we fall prey to it, right? I mean, how many of us uh, fall prey to, uh, to thinking or, or, or a mindset that's ashamed of the gospel? Huh? Okay, there's one, one other person in the back. Look, come on. All of us do, right? All of us. You ever had such fear in your heart about sharing the gospel when you had opportunity that you didn't do it? At that moment, you were ashamed of the gospel. And that's where the world wants to keep you. 
But you know what? That's not what God has called us to. One day, one day we will see him face to face. And any suffering that we endured here on earth will be as nothing compared to the glory that he has revealed to us. But notice what he says. We will not be ashamed on that day. On that day, we will not be disappointed. We're telling the world, we have trusted Christ for our eternal salvation. You should trust Christ for your eternal salvation. And they're going to say, that's nonsense. That's foolishness. That's been debunked. That's not real. And you're going to say, it is real. It is real. God has changed my life. Let me show you in his word. Let me show you in his world. And they're going to say, get out of my life. Leave me alone. Just know this. On the day of Christ's return, the final day of judgment, when you stand before God, there will be no shame. Rather, there will be honor. There will be honor and glory and blessing for you. Listen, this is security. Those who believe, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. When? On that day. You're going to walk in before the, um, the court of God and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. My friends, this is ultimate security. The world wants to shame us for our faith, and the Lord is telling us, trust me, trust me, trust me. Because the only day that really matters is coming, and on that day, you will not be ashamed. You will be so glad that you clung to Christ. And then Peter emphasizes in verse 7, so this honor or your version may say, this precious value. Honor is a better translation here, I think. So this honor is for you who believe. But for those who refuse to believe, the stone, that is Jesus Christ, that they rejected, God has established as the cornerstone. But to them, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And Jesus will always be that. He will always be to the unbelieving, to the unbeliever, a stone of stumbling and an offensive rock. Because they disobeyed the word that is the gospel, they disobeyed the call of the gospel to repent and believe, they will be disappointed on that day in what they believed. But you, beloved, you are people of divine privilege. And part of that privilege is your security because you believed in the cornerstone. You believed in God's only Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have vital union with Christ. We have fruitful ministry in Christ. We have eternal security in Christ. And then verse 9, we have a new identity in Christ. Notice what he says. But you, in contrast to the unbelieving, but you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Beloved, we have a new identity. We're not just, we're not just Gentiles scattered over the earth who have religious beliefs. No, we have been adopted by God in Christ. 
We belong to him and we have been given a new name. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, that is set apart for him and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for, what's the next word? Adoption. Adoption. He chose to adopt you before he created the world. You think, okay, what was the most important thing in God's mind when he decided he was going to create all things? What comes first? What comes second? What comes third? Well, I don't know the order of all things, but I do know this order. He adopted you before he created the world. He chose to adopt you before he created the world. If you asked, when did God start loving me? Answer, not on the day you first believed. Not on the day you came to church for the first time. Not on the day that you read your Bible for the first time. No, he started loving you from before the creation of the world. Beloved, this is, this is glorious. And what I want you to see is that all of this comes to us in Christ. It's Paul's favorite term in Ephesians. In Christ, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You were once called children of wrath, Ephesians would say. Now you are called children of God. You've been adopted. You now belong to a new family. You are the chosen of God. You are a chosen race. And then he says, you are... You are a holy, first he said a holy priesthood. Here he says you are now a royal priesthood. I think he's talking about divine authority. There's a difference between the priesthood he mentioned earlier and the priesthood he's mentioning now. Not that the people are different, we're the same people. It's just how he's describing us as different. Before we were a holy people, he's mentioned before, We're a holy people that are designated to live in this world, making sacrifices to God that are pleasing to him, even sacrificing our life if necessary. Here he's talking about the royal priesthood. And we talk about royalty, we talk about kings. We talk about kingdoms. This is about authority. And if you're priests of the king, guess what? Not only going out and ministering to the world, showing the world what God is like because you've been created in his image and you have his gospel, but you can speak on behalf of the king with authority. We, because we have the word of God, we know reality. We know what reality is. We are not like those whose idea of true and false, right and wrong, are like a wax figurine that can be bent and shaped and massaged into whatever form might be most agreeable to the world. No, in Christ we have authority to say to this world that right and wrong have a fixed point in the universe. And that fixed point is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the world will say, are you saying that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ? And you will say, yes, yes, come. And they will say, I don't ever want to talk to you again. 
please don't ever bring this up again. I hate that message. We hate this message. That is so exclusive. You're a bigot. And wrong is right, and right is wrong. And beloved, we just, just as an aside, we gotta, we got to prepare our hearts for this. The America of the future is not the America of the past. The acceptance that Christians received in past generations, even in my generation, is not the kind of acceptance that we will receive in the, in the future. It is not going to be easy to come to church as the pressure mounts. We need to understand that we, no matter where the culture goes, we have the authoritative word of God. And I wish I could give you an example, but several examples, but we need to move on. To be sure, ours is a derived authority. It comes to us from God. It's not our own, but we are of a royal priesthood. We have the privilege and the responsibility of divine authority in Christ. And number six, we have an exclusive relationship with God. You see how all of this is inflammatory to our world today? We have an exclusive relationship with God. Watch this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and here we are, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You now belong to him in a unique way, in a holy way, in a separated way. Can I just say something else that's horribly inflammatory to the world? That not everybody in the world belongs to Christ. Not everyone in the world belongs to God. We are not all God's children. It's not true. That is not true. Those who say all of us are children of God, that is not true. Unless what you mean is that we are children of wrath, that we are minuscule people who because of our sin deserve the wrath of God. If that's what you mean by children of God, then that's correct. But just because you exist doesn't mean that you have a relationship with God. You do have a relationship with God, but it's a hostile relationship. Unless he is gracious, unless he is kind, unless he sends to you one who will proclaim the gospel and give you a heart to receive it, On top of all the other privileges, Peter says, we are a holy possession, a a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Holy here means set apart. You know, there were things about the temple that uh, every instrument, every utensil was holy. You know what he meant by that? It was set apart for God. Um, You took a shovel from the altar, you couldn't use that to dig your garden. It was holy to God. They had an incense that they would use in their worship. It was holy to the Lord. If you got caught trying to make that, that incense, you were to be stoned to death. Why? Because it was holy to the Lord. It had been set apart for him. The altar of God was holy to the Lord. It was not to be used for barbecuing. The temple of the Lord was holy to God. There shouldn't be any idols in it. And yet Israel brought idols in, which is the reason for their 70 years of captivity. Judah, but you, beloved, 
You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. So do you see this, beloved? Do you see the privileges that we have by grace and all of it in Christ? All of it in Christ? I hope you see that what Peter is doing here is he's lifting up Christ, lifting up Christ, lifting up Christ before our eyes. And so do you see it? We are such a privileged people. Christ has united us to himself. Christ bears fruit through us. Christ sovereignly secures us. Christ adopted us from before the foundation of the world. Christ has shared his authority with us. Christ has secured an an exclusive relationship with the Father for us. Everything we have is Christ. In Christ alone, in Christ alone, in Christ alone. These are only a small sampling of the excellencies of Christ. This is the fringe of his garment. We could go into so many other attributes of God in Christ. But this is just a small sample. There's so much more. And we would do well to search them in the scriptures and meditate on them And let them fill your hearts with joy and let them accomplish God's intended purpose in your life. You should regularly be reading the gospel. And by that I mean Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. No matter what else you're reading in the Bible, we should be regularly focused on Christ. God desires for us to respond to all of this, all of that that he's just revealed to us. There is a designated response to it all. Peter, why are you telling us this? Peter, it's it's hard to follow you here. You're, You're throwing so much in and it's glorious. It's hard to get my head around. Peter, I understand that God is... He's great in Christ and he has given us everything that we don't deserve from God in Christ. Why are you telling us that? And his answer... Verse 9, so that, here's the purpose, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You say, well, isn't he speaking of God the Father here? No, he's not. Look at verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord, Yahweh, is good. And then he follows that up with Jesus. Do you understand? All through, even through the Old Testament, when Yahweh appears, he's the second person of the Trinity. And even here, he connects Yahweh with this cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ. He is the one. He is the one. If you are to be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transformed or transplanted into his kingdom of marvelous light. It will be by the agency of Jesus Christ. So why is he telling us all of this? So that this is, this is what would characterize our lives, that we would exist. Can you say it with me again? We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things. Stop there. In all things. Um, you having trouble as a married couple right now? God's called you 
to run to and to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Are you sick right now? Are you just weary because you're getting old? Declare the excellencies of Christ. Tell the world, even in this situation, Christ is excellent. Do you have cancer? Tell the world. Don't tell the world, God's going to heal me. I know God's going to heal me. You don't know that. God may be more glorified in your suffering than in your healing. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Are you having financial trouble? Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Is your heart not working like it used to be? You wish you could run like you used to be able to run or think? Boy, I I struggle with this all the time. Lord, I just can't think like I used to be able to think. But declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ. That is why you are here. It's why he created you why I'm here. Peter tells us the reason he said all of this is so that we would know and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Outward expression of worship and praise of Jesus Christ should, should be the most natural thing in the world for those who follow Christ. We've been trying to plan a trip to Yellowstone. It keeps getting thwarted. Yellowstone with the water spraying in the air. I was thinking about that and it occurred to me. That subterranean heat that warms the geyser, that causes water naturally to erupt, is a reflection of the love of God that warms our hearts and causes praise to overflow from our lips. But here's the thing. If you don't have the heat down where it cannot be seen, if the glory is not there, if love of Christ isn't there, then there will be no proclamation of the excellencies of Christ. Or let's play that in reverse. If there is no proclamation of Christ from your lips, then the source of the problem is not your lips, it's your heart. It's, it's not your physical ailment. It's your heart. It's not your diminishing mental ability. It's your heart. It's not your husband who doesn't like you as much or your wife who doesn't adore you as much. It's your heart. It's not your job situation. It's not your car situation. It's not your hurricane situation. The problem is your heart. My friends, this is what we were made for. Isaiah 43, 20 and 21, God says, I give water to the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Listen to this. The people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praises. And another sampling, Psalm 96, which Keith read this morning, the psalmist commands, declare the glory among the nations, his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the people, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary, ascribe to the Lord. You know what that means? You can't give God more glory in his being. He is as glorious as he's going to get. He's infinitely glorious. You can't add to that, but you can look at it And you say, I see it, Lord, and I love it, and I'm overwhelmed by it. That's what it means to ascribe glory, to say it with your mouth. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. 
and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth and say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The growing knowledge of our privileges in Christ should produce in us what I am calling gospel urgency. That is, it should move us to be ever on the lookout for opportunities to share with people how marvelous and precious Jesus is to you and to his Father. In the hope that the Holy Spirit, Ruach Elohim, will open their hearts. And this is how he may do it. My friend, tell me, I know you've been struggling with this illness for so long, and yet every time I talk to you, you bless me. How is that possible? And you say, my hope is not in my healing. My hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is my rock. He alone is my stability. He alone is my hope. My joy is in him. If my leg must be cut off, if, my, if I must lose my hand, if I die, I look forward to seeing him. He is my all in all, and he can be yours as well. Dear neighbor, how is it that you and your church and your friends keep showing up at my door while my wife is ill, bringing food to my family? We don't even know you. And you say, you know, Christ has loved and cared for me and my family so carefully and graciously and lovingly. And we know that it pleases him when we show the same love to other people. So believe me when I say, it is our pleasure to serve you because we are serving Christ and he loves you and you can know him if you would like to. You may say, well, that's not really sharing the gospel. And you'd be right. It's not yet sharing the gospel. But consider this. I heard a statistic recently last week that said over 90% of those who trust Christ are introduced to him by a friend who demonstrated the love of Christ in a practical way and or invited them to church. So here's part of the message I want you to hear this morning. You don't have to be a theologian to declare the excellencies of Christ. And I know this is going to sound like heresy to some, but you don't even have to go to an evangelistic training seminar to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And, and that's nothing, nothing down on evangelism training. Not at all. By all means, get the training. I love Way of the Master and, and uh, Evangelism Explosion and some of the good ones that have really done a, an excellent job in teaching people how to share the gospel. But so many times we're not, we're not ready to share the gospel or maybe you've never been taught to share the gospel, but you can do this. You can proclaim the excellencies of Christ. You can love them. You can let them see Christ in you and then get ready or bring them here where there's tons of people who are ready. His mercies, his grace toward us should cause us to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. 
This is our motivation for gospel urgency. Now let's talk about reformation of gospel urgency. And the question that I want to raise is, why do so few people do this? Why do so few people look for opportunities to talk to others about Jesus? Just to talk about how great he is and how glorious he is. Why do so few people take those opportunities? And perhaps it's because you've never heard it explained like this and you've always been intimidated because you don't know the gospel well enough to really defend it and to share it in specific. Well, you know it now. Maybe now you're ready to get after it. That'd be great. But I would suggest that oftentimes the reason we don't is because the love of Christ that would otherwise motivate us to love and serve and speak to others has grown cold. You know, one of the dominant themes in this passage is holiness. Dominant theme in the book of Hebrews is holiness. And that seems random. I thought we were talking about something else. Not in Peter's mind, not in the Holy Spirit's mind. We might say that... Um, you might start looking as we're studying this passage, you know, Lord, why did you insert holiness all over? You kind of, it's almost as if he wrote this text and then, and then went back and peppered it with statements about holiness. You might think that holiness is living a life that is morally pure. And it is, it is. Or you might think that to be holy is to separate yourself from the world and stop doing the sin that you love. It is. That's a part of holiness. And there are other more complicated definitions of holiness that we won't delve into. You want one that's real simple? Let me give you a definition of holiness that you already have memorized. You know what holiness is? It's this. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And... Love your neighbor as yourself. Now understand this, that if you are going to do that, those two things, there are things in your life that will be pushed out. Those impure things, those things that distract you away from the glory of Christ will of necessity be pushed out. And that's what we find. As Peter presupposes these two aspects of holiness, loving God and loving people. For example, turn back one page to chapter 1. He assumes his readers love Jesus. Look at verse 8 where he writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Okay, let's rewind that verse. When was the last time you experienced joy inexpressible and full of glory because of your love for Christ or his apparent love for you? You want to restore that sense of gospel urgency that you had the day you first believed and you couldn't wait to tell your friends about Jesus, even though they thought you were crazy? I would suggest that you rekindle your love for Jesus. That's where it begins. That heat that's down below in the hidden place. 
And let the knowledge and experience of his love for you, his forgiveness of you, his acceptance of you in Christ kindle also a love for people. Peter talks about several kinds of holiness here. Let me just give them some artificial names just to tag them. In verse 14, there is childlike holiness. Watch this, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Remember Genesis 1, 26 and 27? God created us in his image. Part of that image is he's holy. So be holy, for I am holy. As obedient children, this is childlike holiness. And then look at verses 22 and 23. This is loving holiness. And notice how in all of these, he's pushing certain sins out while he's inviting into your life this holiness. Watch verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since You have been born again, not to a perishable, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You want to know what holiness is? It's loving your neighbor. It's loving people in need. It's serving them. It's taking meals to strangers just because you know they need it. It's stopping to help somebody with a a flat tire on the road. It's paying for someone's meal because it's apparent they don't have the money. I'm not talking about Starbucks. I'm (laughs) talking about real need. And then we have childlike holiness, loving holiness, and then we have hungry holiness. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice. Notice something's got to be put aside. And all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Are you hungry for it? You know what part of holiness is? It's waking up every morning and saying, God, God, I'm not very hungry for your word this morning, but I'm going to go eat. Make me hungry. I know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Make me hungry. Make me thirsty. Like a newborn baby who won't eat anything else you put in its mouth except milk. It's a hungry holiness. And then there's a sacrificial holiness. Verses 4 and 5. As you come to him as living stones rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We already talked about those. All the variety of ways that you sacrifice your own will, sacrifice your own desires for the good of other people. And then there's a hate-defying holiness. Don't we need this in the world? Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens, sojourners is probably what it says in your Bible, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Notice, 
Your holiness is pushing out certain things which wage war against your soul. But here's the thing, verse 12. Here's a manifestation of holiness. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they slander you, you know, there's an assumption here. They will. When they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus said it this way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Said a different way, proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. You want a deep sense of gospel urgency? Do you want to be effective at helping people come to Christ? It starts with holiness. Rekindle your love for Christ and let your love for Christ rekindle your love for people and let your love for people open opportunities to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things and perhaps even share the gospel with them. I suspect the 2018 ministry year could be the finest, most joyful, fruitful, and difficult year our church has ever had. And it will be for your good and for the glory of Christ if we resolve in all things, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, these are startling truths to us, and yet we know they're true. And it has, over the past three weeks of thinking of these things brought such conviction to my own heart and such glory in my moments of prayer and reading your word. I pray, Father, that, that it would continue in my heart and that it would continue in the hearts of your people here or that it would be reignited. Oh, Father, I pray that a love for Jesus Christ and the knowledge of the love of Christ and his excellencies would be rekindled in our hearts so that we can kindle in ourselves by your Spirit a true sense of gospel urgency for those who need to know Christ and as yet do not. Forgive us for our selfishness. It calls us to be God-besotted people who love